Welcome to Curbside Console Statistical Review, where we break down study design and statistical methods in studies published at the NEJM. I'm Amanda Fernandez, one of this year's editorial fellows. On our last episode, Dr. Chambers joined us for a discussion on endocarditis. We briefly discussed the microbiology, clinical signs and symptoms, and then delved into the recently published randomized control trial in our journal by Iverson and colleagues. In this trial, the use of partial oral antibiotics in patients with stable left-sided infective endocarditis was compared to patients treated only with intravenous antibiotics. In the trial, the main primary outcome was a composite outcome. Composite outcomes are frequently used in both randomized control trials and observational studies. In this episode of Statistical Review, we're going to ask the question, what is a composite outcome? What are the arguments for and against them? and try to understand how to interpret trials and observational studies that have these composite outcomes as the primary outcome. Joining us in discussion, we're excited to welcome back Dave Harrington, Emeritus Professor of Biostatistics at the Harvard School of Public Health. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Amanda. Let's start out first by understanding what we really mean when we say composite outcomes. So one of the key central parts or pieces of designing a clinical trial is the outcome or the endpoint. Composite outcomes, where multiple endpoints or components of an endpoint are combined, are often used as primary outcomes in randomized trials and observational studies because they increase the event rate. Often, this includes mortality along with other non-fatal endpoints. When designing a clinical trial to answer a specific question, why do researchers decide on using composite outcomes in a clinical trial? Most trials in chronic diseases are event-driven trials. The primary outcome is a time to some event. The statistical power of these trials depends upon the number of events, not just the sample size. For outcomes like mortality from cardiovascular disease, for instance, that has declined significantly with improvements in therapy, research showing that new therapies are effective would require large sample sizes and extended follow-up if mortality alone was an endpoint. Composite outcomes lead to higher event rates because more types of events are combined. They lead to smaller sample sizes, shorter follow-up, or both. This improves the power and decreases the type 2 error of the trial. Trials are generally very expensive, and ideally they should provide reliable estimates of treatment effects in a timely and cost-effective manner, and composite endpoints help them do that. Okay. So in the case of the POE trial, it had four individual component outcomes, and one of the components was mortality, which uh, makes sense. And then the other three were all complications of infective endocarditis. And so those were embolic events, ongoing bacteremia, and needing cardiac surgery. What happens in clinical trials when a primary outcome is not obvious? If there is no obvious choice of primary outcome in a trial, then it's possible to adopt a composite of several outcomes. The International Conference on Harmonization of Technical Requirements for Registration of Pharmaceuticals for Human Use, that's a mouthful and usually is abbreviated as ICH, describes this in the following way. If a single primary variable cannot be selected from multiple measurements associated with the primary objective, another useful strategy is to integrate or combine the multiple measurements into a single composite variable using a predefined algorithm. This approach addresses the multiplicity problem without requiring adjustment to a type 1 error. It also helps investigators avoid an arbitrary choice between several important outcomes that refer to the same disease process and can be a means of assessing the effectiveness of a patient-reported outcome that addresses more than one aspect of the patient's health status. Okay. 
We've talked about the use of composite outcomes. What are some problems associated with using composite outcomes? Composite outcomes can be difficult to interpret. Although treated like a primary endpoint, the fact that several endpoints are combined can be a challenge. Since the event types are in fact combined, there may not be enough power to detect an important effect on a particularly important event, such as death from disease. All of the event types are treated equally, so that a hospitalization would count the same as a death if both are components of a composite. Ascribing benefits to all of the components of the trial when it's driven by one of the outcomes might be a problem. Okay. If the different components are not affected in the same way by treatment or if the treatment effect varies across the components with different clinical important effects. Measures of treatment effect can also be diluted by a particular component if there are many events of that one type and the events happen equally often in the two treatments being considered. So when trials combine multiple endpoints into a single endpoint, each is given the same importance. The relative importance to patients, however, could be different. So if you think about it, if one outcome or if one of your components is all-cause mortality, that might be more important to patients than, say, some of the other components, for instance, like in the infective endocarditis trial, such as embolic events, relapse of bacteremia, or cardiac surgery. So how should we be interpreting these composite outcomes? So the literature has converged on important points to ask about composite trials. And these three are probably the most important. Are the component endpoints of similar importance to patients? Did the more or less important endpoints occur with similar frequency? Can one be confident that the composite endpoints share similar relative risk reduction? Is the underlying biology of the component endpoints similar enough such that one would expect to see similar relative risk reductions? Are the point estimates of the relative risk reductions similar? And are the confidence intervals sufficiently narrow? Okay. So keeping that in mind, Dave, let's look at the POET trial. And based on previous studies, they estimated that the overall risk of the primary outcome was between 5 to 13%. And they chose a risk difference in a non-inferiority margin of 10 percentage points. So let's look at what they found. So with regards to the composite outcome, they found that it occurred in 24 patients, so 12% in the intravenously treated group, and in 18 or 9% in the orally treated group with a between-group difference of 3.1 percentage points. They had a 95% confidence interval that spanned from negative 3.4 to 9.6 with a P of 0.4. Dave, how do we interpret these findings and then the individual component findings as well? So this is a particularly good example of the successful use of a composite endpoint in a trial. As you pointed out, composite endpoint showed that they met their non-inferiority bound by showing that the difference between the two groups actually favored the combined arm by 3%, and the lower confidence bound exceeded the 10% non-inferiority margin. What's also important about this trial is that there were four component events, as you mentioned earlier, all-cause mortality, unplanned cardiac surgery, embolic event, and the relapse of the positive blood culture. Without the composite event, this trial would not have reached its non-inferiority bound because of the 42 events, only 20 of those were mortality. And so had they followed for mortality only, the trial would have to have been much larger or had much longer follow-up. But by using the four components, they were able to get enough events in their trial. It's also important to note that in this trial, if one looks at the primary data as published in the paper, all of the four components basically showed very similar findings. They all showed that the combined arm using both IV and oral antibiotics was actually no worse than IV antibiotics alone. Okay. 
And so I think this really highlights the usefulness of composite outcomes. Just to recap what you've said, because you have these four different component outcomes that are different, but if you just did a study looking at one of these components, the study would have to be much longer or have more patients in order to actually be powered adequately. And that highlights the use of these composite outcomes. Thanks, Dave. We've covered a lot today, so let me summarize briefly what we've talked about. Composite outcomes in which multiple endpoints are combined are frequently used as primary outcome measures in randomized controlled trials and observational studies. It can be used when a single outcome of interest is rare, making it impractical and difficult to conduct a study, or if the disease has many important clinical consequences. It can also be used when the clinical outcome is not obvious. But combining different outcomes into a single composite outcome also has its limitations, and this needs to be considered when examining these trials. When you're looking at composite outcomes, you should ask yourself, are the individual components of similar importance to patients? Do these components occur in similar frequency? And what is the underlying etiology of these components? Are they similar enough to have similar relative risk reductions? Looking at the POE trial, the composite endpoints, If we look at the component endpoints, one would assume that mortality would be more important to patients than the other components. And then based on previous studies, most of the individual component outcomes had the same risk reduction. Thanks a lot, Dave, for joining us on this episode of Statistical Review. I hope we've given our listeners a bit more insight into the primary literature that makes up the New England Journal of Medicine. As always, we want your feedback. Please email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Or feel free to reach out to us via NEJM Resident 360 website. A big thank you to Dave Harrington and our production team here at NEJM Resident 360, which includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern, my co-fellows Dr. Angela Castellanos and Dr. Angela Chen, and our education editor, Dr. Opie Hemenvik. I'm Amanda Fernandez, editorial fellow at NEJM. Please join us for our next episode.